You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Anatole. Hello. How you doing? Uh, fine, fine. Nice to see you. Good to see you again. It's been a while. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Anatole Levin. Um, you've been... Uh, uh, a professor at various places. Right now, you are at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in Washington. I mean, you're not physically there, but that's your uh, that's your big affiliation now. You're a senior research fellow on Russia and Europe, author of a number of books, most recently Climate Change in the Nation State. That's not what we're going to talk about, maybe, maybe down the road, but you're also uh, the author of, a, of an earlier book called Ukraine and Russia, a Fraternal Rivalry, that's uh, closer to what we're going to be talking about, which is the Ukraine crisis, which most people are probably familiar with. There are Russian troops along the Ukrainian border. Uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, called for some things that uh, strike some people as an ultimatum, um, uh, notably including uh, some kind of guarantee that Ukraine will not uh, ever join NATO. Uh, the list is longer than that, but 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 that seems to be at the top. And I wanted to talk to you about this whole thing uh, because you know, know a lot about the region. I hope we'll have time toward the end to ask you uh, a question that I hope we'll have a hopeful answer, which is, is it possible this could lead to something good in, in, in the ultimately, in other words, a larger diplomatic conversation that addresses a number of the kind of structural uh, security problems involving the U.S., Russia, Ukraine, Europe, and so on. So I'm going to carve out time for that. You might, if you want to give us a sneak preview, you could give us a yes or no answer. Do you think there's any hope on that front? Hope dies last, as the Russians say. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I hope so. But I mean, obviously, given the history of um, uh, the West's relations with Russia over the past 30 years, one can't be too optimistic. Okay. Let's start uh, with uh, your assessment of the situation relative to the standard way it's being described. I mean, I, I just gave you the standard description, I guess. There's people say 100,000 troops. He's uh, clearly making logistical preparations that would be associated with some kind of invasion. Uh the list of demands goes beyond uh, the Ukraine-NATO issue to include, uh, I, I think, even uh, pulling some existing uh, members of NATO out of NATO. Of course, NATO has expanded relentlessly toward Russia since the Cold War. That was a, a critical decision made by the U.S. in particular uh, for reasons that probably don't make sense to either you or me. But here we are. NATO has absorbed uh, not just former members of the Warsaw Pact, you know, R the Russia's equivalent of NATO during the Cold War, but the uh, but but former republics of the Soviet Union. It is now NATO is now on Russia's border, and and Putin has said not to like this. Um, do you do you share the 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 degree of alarm and the sense of peril that we're hearing? I mean, in other words, do you think we are likely to see? an invasion, given the fact that not nearly all of Putin's demands uh, are going to be met? It's possible, but I, I don't regard this as a 1914-style ultimatum, because if, if it had been, then obviously Russia would have moved by now. Um, the negotiations are still uh, ongoing. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been some indications of, uh, of flexibility. Uh, also, um, before they could launch a full-scale invasion or even, I think, a more limited incursion to take the whole of the Donbass, um, the Russians would need to assemble more troops. We would see this coming. We'd have some warning, at least. 100,000 is, is not enough for that. So, so far, this is Russian pressure. Uh, but um, I am afraid that the Russian government has pitched its demands so high that it would be very difficult now um, for Putin to withdraw from this without, uh, you know, some success or appearance of success. So, I mean, what U.S. negotiators ought to be doing um, it is, you know, fi finding um, a way, uh, building a golden bridge, if you will, um, to allow the Russians to 
uh, withdraw from their maximal demands without humiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- this is the essence of, of diplomacy. Um, but it does require flexibility. It also requires, you know, not tying the hands of the uh, of the Biden administration. You know, if um, if the U.S. Congress had tied the hands of the Kennedy administration in this in the way that they're trying to do with Biden uh, during the C- Cuban Missile Crisis, there is a very very good chance that none of us will be alive today. Is is Congress actually trying to do formal things now to tie Biden's hands? Well, in effect, yes, with the um, with the sanctions bill, you know, which um, mandates uh, greatly intensified sanctions for even, you know, a limited Russian action. Fortunately, Ted Cruz's bill was defeated, but the Menendez bill is not, you know, much better. Okay. And when you say uh, Putin needs to save face, do you mean both uh, in front of the international community and uh, in front of his domestic uh, political audience? Yes, uh, because um, something that is is not you know nearly enough recognised in in the West is that there are people within the Russian establishment who are much harder line than Putin, and ever since 2014, you know the Ukrainian revolution and Russia's response um, have been bitterly unhappy that Russia didn't go much further in that year. Um, you know, remember Russia annexed Crimea, and you know it backed a rebellion in part of eastern Ukraine. Um, But militarily speaking, there was nothing to stop Russia from taking much bigger areas. Um, And, you know, the massacre of Russian protesters in Odessa would have given them a pretty good excuse for intervention. Mm -hmm. And there's a line in the Russian establishment that that, that Putin didn't do that because he placed too much faith in in the Germans, in particular, and French, to negotiate a compromise, which, of course, they've wholly failed Mm -hmm. to do. It's funny. I I think of Putin as being responsive to domestic politics in the sense that he wants to maintain broad popular support. Uh, And I think that's an underappreciated fact about people we call dictators. They actually do do not have unlimited power. They very much care about how they are perceived by the people in their country. I hadn't thought of him as being susceptible to pressure from other elites so much. Uh, But but your your reading is. Uh, because I, I I just thought of him as controlling all the levers uh, in that in that realm. But uh, your your view, I mean, what kinds of people does he need to worry about at the higher echelons of Russian power? You mean oligarchs or people in government or both or what? State oligarchs, the the the, the kind of ex secret service people, uh, you know, who he has put in charge of large swathes of the of the private economy. Um, and the oil, gas, and mineral sector, uh, because P- Putin. I mean, once again, you know, p- people g- get the nature of the Russian system wrong. Um, Putin is as much the chairman of a quarrelling board of Russian elites mm-hmm. as he is a personal dictator. Um, and you know, all of these people have a great share of power themselves. Um, and uh, they're, you know, behind the scene. Now, none of this comes out in public, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, but behind the scenes, they they do have a great deal of power. And of course, the other thing to remember is that, um, uh, you know, if as Putin gets older, at some stage, he is going to want to retire. <laughs> and at that point, the whole, you know, th- these divisions could burst out into the open again. Uh, so he has to. Um, you know, he 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 has to maintain his his grip on the so Russian he, establishment. So he can't just fire like if one of these guys gets unruly, he can't just fire him without paying some big big price. One yes, five no. Uh, <laughs> I see. So in other words, if if three or four of them say, "Look, you're not you're not being tough enough on Ukraine." Uh, then, then he has a problem. Yeah, and I mean, basically, what they're saying him, to him is, "Look, we told you so. We told you you should have gone much further in 2014. You told us, you know, no, no, it's make, you know, it's it's more important to work with with France and Germany and the Europeans. And you know, I have a good relationship with Merkel. Uh, we will work something out. Um, and uh, they now said we told you so. And what is, what do they wish had happened?" What are they blaming him 
for not having happened? What 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 had they hoped Ukraine would look like now? I mean, after all, he did successfully seize uh, Crimea. They've annexed it. They're not giving it back. That's where the big Russian naval base is. That's an important thing from their point of view to hold on to. Uh, the Donbass, uh, which is the easternmost, uh, I guess, most intensively Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, is beyond the control of Kiev. Uh, you know, at the time, people had said, uh, uh, you know, during the during the the first part of this crisis after the uh, 2014 revolution, people said, well, what 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 Putin wants is just uh, to keep keep the civil war on simmer and keep Ukraine from being an effective state. The civil war is on simmer. I don't know how effective Ukraine is. Uh, what, what do the, what do you think these people in his, uh, in his circle of power are blaming him for right now? What, what did they want to happen? But the, the thing is that there is this line in the West that, you know, Putin just, you know, wants to create wars. Putin, you know, likes disruption, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is, frankly, um, well, hate-filled garbage. It's rubbish. Um, you know, the, the Russian establishment, not just Putin, has concrete goals. Um, it will use ruthless methods to try to achieve those goals and necessarily work. But um, in Ukraine, the point is um, to keep Ukraine as a whole out of a Western alliance, uh, a de facto alliance, not just a, you know, a, a membership of NATO, uh, and to uh, preserve the uh, Russian and Russian-speaking populations within Ukraine as a really powerful force to ensure friendly relations with Russia. Now, for that, um, of course, the annexation of Crimea was important in itself. Uh, occupying two-thirds of the Donbass does not hack it. Um, what they would have wanted was basically to take half of Ukraine, all the Russian-speaking areas, and then not annex them, uh, but uh, turn them into autonomous republics, and then say, um, Oh no, we you know we want a united sovereign Ukraine. Absolutely, we are deeply committed to Ukrainian uh, national unity on these conditions, uh, which would be neutrality or no member of membership of NATO, uh, plus uh, autonomy, federalization for Ukraine as a whole, with guarantees for the Russian language um, and therefore for friendship with Russia. Uh, through um, all, you know, basically all the Russian-speaking areas um, having local autonomy and control over their own. So that's what the um, look. I mean, there are there are mad Russians who would like to annex um, Ukraine as a whole, but they're not in the establishment. The establishment has a, a more limited series of goals which they haven't got yet. Um, and uh, that, that, uh, now the question is, how little can Putin accept? now in terms of a deal can't yeah. accept nothing that's for sure yeah the um and, and is there concern with ukraine of course in america we're like you know what's what's the problem don't you understand we have innocent intentions and we would never want to to invade russia or anything Meanwhile, of course, we think that we uh, need a buffer that's at least as big as the entire Western Hemisphere. I mean, literally, that, that's a formal doctrine, but, but, but we don't understand why anybody could find us threatening. Is the concern among Putin's, within Putin's circle that this is actually a national security issue? If, if Ukraine is there, not there as a buffer state, uh, Russia could get invaded, or is it more like they need a Ukraine sympathetic to Russian interests in order to get various, you know, favorable treatment in various uh, realms that are not existential. I mean, the, the, look, the, the the Russians are just as paranoid as the Americans, um, if you see what I mean. Uh, uh, Mexico entering an alliance with China would not threaten the actual invasion of the United States. But you know as well as I do, it would send the entire American security establishment into a state of total hysteria. Nothing else would matter in American politics until that had been reversed. Uh, and um, America would use whatever methods were necessary, as it always has, uh, in order to destroy the Mexican government responsible for that and replace it with one sympathetic to the United States. So that's the first thing. 
Um, you know, the, Russia has a blob, just as America has a blob, and blobs operate uh, according to permanent doctrines. Um, you know, which which lay down um, the what the blob considers to be the vital interests of the state mm -hmm. concerned. Um, and if you do well, not sign, blob meaning for those who don't follow these things, the the the, the American foreign policy establishment. Uh, people like you and I use it in a not entirely flattering way, that term. Go ahead. Um, uh, and, you know, if you don't sign up to these doctrines, at least, you know, formally and in public, you're not a member of the blob. Uh, as I no doubt we have both experienced, um, uh, if you don't sign up to universal American primacy in the world, uh, you are not a member of the blob in America. If you don't sign up to, um, you know, Russia retaining predominant influence uh, in its immediate neighborhood mm -hmm. and excluding hostile uh, military alliances, you are not a member of the Russian blob. Mm -hmm. I mean, they won't shoot you, but uh, they also will not, um, you know, invite you to, to yeah. be a senior position, to, to have any position in the Russian administration. But with Ukraine, you see, it's, now here's something where it's more difficult for uh, America to understand. But there is also the factor um, of concern for the Russian minority in, in Ukraine and its status mm -hmm. and for um, the whole historical, cultural, ethnic relationship between Russia and right. Ukraine. This, by the way, makes Ukraine a very different case from the Baltic states, let alone Poland or Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. Whatever, um, you, you know, the, and the thing is that, as, as seen from Russia, Putin said this, you know, in an essay in the last summer, but widely shared in the Russian establishment. What, what is happening now in Ukraine is, is that you, there is developing um, a Ukrainian ethnic nationalism backed by the West, which is dedicated, you know, which is shaping itself around hostility to Russia um, and plans to destroy the Russian language. Um, and, and in fact, uh, there are initiatives now. I gather that the Russian language is to some extent being what? Pushed out of schools, out of media. Uh, maybe that's an exaggeration, but things along those lines are happening from Kiev, right? Yes. And uh, from Russian perspective, this is just what the, um, what the Latvians and Estonians did after independence uh, under the cover of NATO and EU membership. Mm -hmm. So, and Russia is determined to stop that. Now, it has to be said, of course, that... Um, a lot of what Russia itself has done mm -hmm. um, since 2014, you know, has done an enormous amount to stimulate this Ukrainian hostility. Um, like supporting the rebels in Donbass. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, and generally, you know, Russia's and the annexation of Crimea and, you know, yeah. Russian pressure. But um, in any case, that's, that's what this is about from a Russian point of right. view. And that, I mean, again, so-called autocrats do have to worry about uh, political rivals. That's why Navalny is in jail, because Putin's worried. That's why people sometimes get uh, disappear or get killed, I guess. But the, 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 uh, and you can imagine this being a very strong card for a political rival to, to play. If you can say our, our brother Russians are being oppressed in Ukraine, and arguably you could point to examples right now uh, where they're suddenly finding it harder to 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 uh, find like Russia's Russian language media outlets uh, because of things being done in Kiev. That's a very powerful political card for a rival to uh, play. And in fact, I had heard that uh, Navalny himself is is more of a nationalist than Americans realize. Who assume they assume Navalny is is uh, you know some kind of cosmopolitan, uh, sophisticated made in their image, but actually. Uh, he himself might not be above saying something like that. I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, we, we cultivated an image of her which turned out to be very largely mistaken. Navalny is, if anything, more of an ethnic nationalist than Putin himself. Um, and I don't believe that there is the slightest chance that Navalny, if in some parallel universe he became president, uh, would he certainly would not hand back Crimea and the Donbass. Um, and he would regard it as his duty to defend the position of Russia and Russians within Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, this, you see, I mean, the, the whole point is this is not, a, you know, we go on and on and on and on about Putin, or rather not about Putin, but about a kind of mythological monster called Putin. Um, Putin this, Putin that. It's ain't about Putin. 
or Putin. It's about um, you know the, the the sense of vital Russian interests held mm-hmm. by the Russian establishment um, and by very large numbers of ordinary Russians as well. Yeah. So, what do you think is the? Uh, well, I guess there are two questions. Is there something that Biden could do, given the political constraints he faces, or at least thinks he faces? And just parenthetically, I would say, I think one thing that Donald Trump showed is that actually the American people don't necessarily have the same concerns about foreign policy that the foreign policy establishment has. He showed you can actually heap disrespect on John McCain and get elected president, something previously thought impossible. Okay, so Biden may actually have, when it comes to popular opinion, a little more running room than he thinks he does. But that that with that question bracketed off, I'd like to address two questions. Uh, One is, what do you think the most we can hope for Biden to do uh, by the way of concessions that might head off any military action? And then we'll get to the question of failing that. What's the minimum military action you think Putin needs in order to uh, shore up, you know, address his own political issues? Well, I mean, I still hope um, that uh, the the American team could do three things, um, none of which sacrifice anything from a Western point of view. Uh, The first is, now, it's been made clear that we can't permanently rule out NATO membership for Ukraine. Uh, But given that absolutely nobody, and I mean nobody, thinks that Ukraine can be a member of NATO within the next 10 or 20 years, what would be possible would be uh, to declare a moratorium um, to say, look, let's since you take this so seriously, and since you know Ukrainian membership is not a a, a imminent thing in any case, um, we we will uh, we will say that we will uh, uh, only reconsider this if we reconsider it at all. Say ten. Well, you know, um, the Russians might demand twenty. We offer ten. Maybe we compromise on fifteen. You know. Ah. So that's a moratorium on any NATO expansion or on Ukrainian. Uh, I, I mean, it might be politically easier to phrase it generically and say, "Yeah, you're it, quite right." No, any any further NATO expansions? Right, that's the first right. thing. Um, the, uh, the 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 second thing is um, the United States remains formally committed to the Minsk II peace process, uh, peace settlement idea for the Donbass, which is autonomy within Ukraine. Uh, under demilitarized under international guarantees. Now, the Ukrainians have been refusing to guarantee that, to guarantee permanent autonomy for the Donbass. Mm-hmm. And America has brought no pressure to bear on them. And the French and Germans have sat still. A strong, I mean, you know, then we would have to see whether it was possible to get the Ukrainians to agree with it. But a very strong uh, US, NATO, and EU statement of continued commitment to the Minsk II process with a specific commitment to full autonomy under international guarantees. That would be a second thing, which which would only be actually a reiteration of existing US formal policy, but it would obviously give the appearance of a success to Moscow. Um, We uh, could also accompany that uh, with um, a, a, a statement of um, belief that Ukraine must de- develop as a multi-ethnic uh, d- democracy involving full linguistic and cultural rights uh, for the Russian minority within Ukraine. Um, that is entirely in keeping with Western principles, uh, and um, uh, you know, and that, and we could say specifically that, um, which is quite true, uh, that um, the linguistic rights of the of the minority, um, respect for that, uh, is a condition of eventual uh, membership of NATO mm-hmm. and the European Union. Um, so that would also give the Russians the you know the, the appearance of a success. Um, and <clears throat> and finally, um, when it comes to um, the withdrawal of troops. Uh, well, of course, I mean, there's an obvious solution there. Um, it, because uh, once again, I mean, obviously NATO can't accept unilateral withdrawals. Um, but um, it should be possible to work out uh, an agreement whereby, of course, Russia must withdraw its troops from 
the Ukrainian border and end the threat of invasion. Um, and in return, uh, NATO will uh, promise, uh, uh, will remove some of its existing troops uh, from close to Russia's borders and will... In, in, you mean in, in what uh, kinds of places? I mean, they're not in Ukraine, right? No, no, Baltic states, Poland, Romania. But we'll also undertake that as long as Russia does not, um, once again, deploy troops to threaten Ukraine, um, NATO will not deploy additional troops uh, close to Russia's borders. So all of those things would, would um, you know, would not involve, they would be reciprocal, they would not involve surrender on the part of the West. But, and I think... I think, and of course guarantee it, that that would give um, the Russian government enough of a success to allow them to back down. Now, wh when it comes to you know, a the possibility of a wider relationship, there was a very good piece by Tom Graham, the former um, Amer American number two in Moscow. Uh, we're having a debate at the Quincy Institute with him and Fyodor Lukyanov, the Russian Council on Foreign Relations on Thursday. And Tom said that, you know, ideally what one should have is a new European architecture involving Russia, which would then set out to solve all the existing uh, territorial disputes and unrecognized territories in Europe, including Kosovo, of course, uh, on the only uh, basis that they can possibly be solved, which is a will of the majority of the, of the local population. Uh, in other words, um, you have a referenda in Nagorno-Karabakh, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, the Donbass, Crimea, and Kosovo. Uh, on do they want to go back to their to, to rejoin their previous states? And does Kosovo want to rejoin Serbia? I think we can be pretty sure of what the majority there would say. Um, but there would then be also uh, the possibility of um, bits of those territories uh, then choosing to stay. You know, with your so Mitrovica, the Serbian-speaking bit, the last bit of Kosovo, could stay with Serbia. Um, Gali, the, the 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 remaining Georgian-populated bit of Abkhazia, could vote to go back to to Georgia, and you would basically have a solution of all these um, conflicts on common okay. democratic principles, but but reciprocal. You know, right. so, so we, we would we would acknowledge. Uh, the legitimacy of Russian-speaking uh, separatists in Georgia, they would acknowledge uh, the separatist aspirations of uh, ethnic Albanians in Kosovo, because because this is one of their grievances with us. Mm -hmm. We intervened in Serbia in '99 or something uh, on behalf of the the Kosovo, and, and and so so that would all get worked out. So that's an an answer to the question I had asked at the open. These are the kinds of issues. That a larger um, and and just to finish that thought in in Georgia, Russia intervened on behalf of these uh, these separatists within Georgia. I, I think partly as maybe as payback for Kosovo, partly by way of uh, protesting uh, our saying in two thousand eight that that we expect both Ukraine and Georgia to eventually uh, join NATO. Both of those are, of course, former uh, Soviet republics. Yeah, but actually, no, Russia didn't. Um, those conflicts date back to the last years of the Soviet Union. Um, Russia inherited uh, those conflicts from from the Soviet Union. Uh, and by the way, I mean... Okay, but it did, just to make sure I've got this right, uh, th there was, uh, in 2008, a conflict in Georgia known as the Georgia-Russia War. Russia was intervening on behalf of separatists within Georgia, right? Not exactly. Uh, Russian troops were in South Ossetia as peacekeepers, replacing so you know the Soviet troops who'd been there. I see. Uh, I see. Before um, Russia had not recognised the independence of, Kos of South Ossetia, uh, it said um, <clears throat> uh, it, it, we still recognise it as part of Georgia, but uh, you know we, we want a peace settlement which will guarantee full autonomy. Uh, for these these areas within Georgia, which the Georgians refused to consider, um, and then the Georgians attacked in August two thousand and eight. The Georgians attacked. Okay. Said, yeah. Okay. So, so there were there Russian, were Russian troops there. Exactly. Russia. Uh, Russia ultimately sent more troops into Georgia during this, but but I take your point. Um, so so uh, 
Okay. Uh, so, by the way, if I can just sort of, if I can just finish the thought. Yeah. I mean, the the, the other point about you know a, a solution along these lines is that we, it would be based on reality. You know, uh, Kosovo is not going back to Serbia um, unless there is a new war, which mm-hmm. Serbia wins, which you know could happen at some stage, but not obviously as long as NATO backs Kosovo. Um, Crimea is not going back to Ukraine since Russia has formally annexed it, uh, unless, of course, we are, are prepared um, to send an army of 500,000 men uh, to Ukraine to attack Russia and drive them out of um, uh, Crimea, uh, a war we might very well lose, and which would also, of course, involve a pretty high chance of, um, of nuclear war. Are we prepared to do that? No. So at that point, why not recognize reality? But of course, as I say, it has to be mutual recognition of reality. The Russians have to recognize, you know, the independence of um, of, of Kosovo. And, and Crimea is a bitter pill to swallow in the sense of uh, it, it being, a, you know, a, a change of borders that was accomplished by force. Uh, I mean, you could, in a way, you could maybe say that for some of these other things. But anyway, that that's an issue that would. Well, if I can up. just, um, if I can just say something on that score, uh, I don't think that we found that pill too hard to swallow, have we? We swallowed it oh, when no, the- not when we changed. It. No, not when we intervened. I, we, well, we, well, we invade illegally all the time. I agree. <laughs> but not just us, but you know, some of our allies as well. Uh, when the Turks invaded Cyprus. Um, did we kick them out of NATO? No. Did we impose economic sanctions? No, we did not. Um, Israel don't even let's you know go there. Um, you know when um, America has you know in effect carved out de facto independence for the Kurds of Iraq uh, after invading. Now the you know there are there may be a perfectly good case for this. Uh, but uh, please, uh, you yeah. know, don't, don't let us no, pretend that, that, that we, we have been in any way yeah. consistent yeah. about this, or that there aren't, you know, perfectly good international precedents. Or yeah. once you're in this mess, and of course, it would be much better if you went in this mess to start with, um, for recognizing reality. That, by the way, is what we've also done, you know, in the case of southern Sudan. For example, you know, America backed independence for Southern Sudan and eventually recognized Southern Sudanese independence. Um, you, you know, we, yeah. Okay. I mean, no, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to convince me of the uh, hypocrisy charge. The, the um, so, okay, so that's, you've, you've listed some, some things to get back to the, the earlier uh, just because you, you've listed some things that you think maybe the West, you know, the U.S., NATO could do. Uh, it, it, I, I'm not sure how easy it would be for Biden to do all of those things politically. So before we move to the question of what you think, barring those kinds of concessions, the minimum Putin has to do militarily. I, a question that occurred to me is like, what if somebody other than Biden made the concessions and somebody other than America? In other words, you know, NATO, I think, strictly speaking, can only uh, make uh, do things through unanimous consent. I, so in principle, Hungary could guarantee Russia, right, that, 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 which it might be inclined to do. Uh, but, but more, uh, perhaps uh, more, uh, a better example would be if you got uh, some more mainstream NATO member like Germany or anyway, some country to say, uh, yeah, we, we, we guarantee you that we will not be supporting uh, membership for Ukraine uh, in NATO uh, until blah, blah, blah. It seems I, I wondered if, if or, I mean, ever, I, I wondered if that is, uh, does that seem conceivable to take the political heat off of Biden? Well, it's conceivable. <laughs> I wrote uh, an article advocating just this, saying that Macron could end this crisis mm-hmm. if Macron were to go. Um, mm-hmm. But that is perhaps uh, rather a lot to ask. Um, but certainly, I mean, if the French came out and said, look, um, uh, we do not believe that Ukraine either can or should ever be in NATO, uh, and I will veto um NATO membership for Ukraine, and I expect my successors to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, of, uh, in my view, that would end the immediate crisis, partly, of course, because at that point, um, the Russians could sit back and and watch, you know, uh, the NATO countries tearing each other's hair, hair out and sort of mud wrestling and mm-hmm. um, 
while, while the Russians drank a cup of coffee. Um, so I think that that would end the crisis. By the way, I mean it would it would um, also, uh, of course, once again recognize reality. And let's you know let let let's just come back to reality for a second. As far as taking Ukraine into NATO is concerned, that implies a readiness to defend. Ukraine against a possible Russian attack. Now, that means the dispatch to Ukraine of an American army on the scale of the American army in West Germany during mm -hmm. the Cold War. Mm -hmm. We are talking here about a couple of hundred thousand men, at least, um, and a large part of the US Air Force. Uh, you are also talking, by the way, about um, something we have not had for the previous 30 years, basically now, which is serious um, armed forces in Western Europe. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about the Germans actually, you know, creating serious armed forces, which they don't have. Uh, you are talking about the British um, es essentially doubling their military expenditure, because on top of their ridiculous aircraft carriers, um, they would have to rebuild the army. At present, Britain has two brigades. The entire British army mm -hmm. can mobilize two brigades for action. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to do more, it has to call up the, you know, dad's army, the territorials and, and you know, pull tanks out of mothballs that have been sitting in garages for 20 years, at which point they fall to pieces. Two brigades. Two brigades can't defend Ukraine. But my point is, nobody is thinking about this. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the Pentagon and say, right, you know, we are committed to Ukrainian membership of NATO. This is what we have to do. They're going to say you must be mad. Have, have you forgotten about China? You're proposing to send most of the American Air Force back to Europe. Uh, you know, that, that would be a green light for, for China to take Taiwan. What are you thinking of? Well, I'll tell you what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking that we might actually, you know, bring together the, the two parts of our brain and put our officials, put our mouths where our actual military, you know, reality and deployments are. Mm -hmm. Because the degree of, um, you know, d dysfunction or cognitive dissonance by now in the West o over this is, is, you know, approaches the surreal, frankly. Yeah. As, do yeah. as does, by the way, which I have to say with due shame as a European or a semi-detached European, um, the idea that our gallant European allies will ever fight for anything. Uh, okay. Uh, so if we assume that, that your list of kind of uh, concessions that might appease Russia uh, does not materialize, is not put forward by the West, which seems to me as a matter of political reality likely that we won't see that set of concessions forthcoming, what do you think is the minimum? that Putin, uh, given the, the pressures he sees as impinging on him and his own aspirations, political and geopolitical, what do you think the minimum military response we, uh, is that we will see from him? I think if, they, if the Russians get nothing that they can present as a success, then what they might do uh, initially is uh, take the whole of the Donbass. And maybe not with a, an open Russian incursion, um, but I mean, it, it would be, but it wouldn't be called that. It would be mm -hmm. called, you know, reinforcements would go to the separatists and they would then drive the Ukrainians out of the whole of the Donbass. Now, that is two provinces or Republicans, whatever, uh, Donetsk and, and one other one. Is that right? Lugansk, yes. But, but there are only about two thirds of them are presently held by the separatists. OK. Well, that might be the first step. Uh, and then... You know, there would be an element of deniability. Nobody would really believe the Russians weren't involved, but they, you know, there would be a sort of legal let out. And then you could see that, and then the Russians would stop and say, okay, look, you know, we've made our point. We will fight. You will not fight. Um, let's talk again, right? Um, now, are you prepared to listen and give us, you know, mm -hmm. some some? But this would involve... Uh Obvious actual participation by Russia, Russian forces, artillery, missiles, and and so on. I mean, you don't you don't think they can plausibly? I, I don't even think they want to plausibly claim, right? I mean, for political reasons, Putin wants to say, "Yeah, we we did this," right? Well, um, you, um, 
I, I was um, uh, on both sides of the um, the Abkhaz War in 92 to 93, after the Georgians, by the way, invaded Abkhazia. Uh, they also started that war. Yeah. Um, people have totally forgotten the real history of many of these conflicts. Right. But anyway, um, that war was won in the end by the the, the Abkhaz um, with the help of a, a, an amazing bunch of different volunteer groups. But it was also won with the help of a, a, a Russian tank unit. Um, and I, I visited that tank unit. Um, it wasn't hard to visit. It was sort of sitting there in its tanks. And um, I, um, so I went up to them and, um, you know, they, they had uh, a very um, hastily painted Abkhaz flags mm-hmm. um, on, on, on those tanks. And I, I had my Abkhaz in, interpreter with me who, uh, by way of a a little bit of a, an unkind joke attempted to speak to the Russian tank crews in in Abkhaz, which they looked very, very bewildered at. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the, you, you could see where the where the Russian you know flags and markings had been painted over. Um, but amusingly, it was rather like you know these fake um, you, you know fake uh, what are they called accessories? Ba- you know where they put the badges on the the, the what are they called the you know what I mean—the the Fendi or Gucci markers on. Oh, oh, oh yeah, the the uh, the, the, the counterfeit uh, brands you buy in uh, the knockoff. The knockoff uh, watches well, you buy in. Yeah. yeah. In well, well uh, quite a lot of these uh, these uh, Abkhaz um, flags had been attached upside down to the Russian tanks. So, you know, this was, to put it mildly, a pretty thin pretense of non-involvement. But Which uh, would be good for Putin politically. I mean, what he what he would like is is for uh, for it to be not plausible deniability, actually. In other words, American politicians saying, these are Russians, these are Russians, and he could go to his people and say, kind of nod. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, everyone would know. But the point is that there would be just, you know, enough room, diplomatic wiggle room. But the point is, though, that if at that point the West still not only refused to negotiate, but impose maximal sanctions, Mm -hmm. uh, then I think Russia would have nothing to lose. And then there would be a real possibility of Russia going much further and taking much, much bigger areas. What's what's the most... the, the other the other point there, of course, is that um, in this battle in the Donbass, the Russians would also be able to assess just how hard the Ukrainians fought. Uh, right. You know, because if the Russians thought that they were going to face a really big, hard fight in yeah. Ukraine, and that this might involve, you know, the Ukrainians holding out in cities and the cities being destroyed in the process, then I think that would really give Russia pause. Um, but if they won very easily in the Donbass, and if the West then refused to negotiate and impose sanctions, then I think they would basically or could move on to take most of the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine. Okay, so you're saying minimum we could expect would be uh, taking all of those two uh, republics that constitute the Don the Donbass, which, if you look at a map of Ukraine, doesn't seem like all that much. It doesn't even encompass all of the Ukrainian-Russian uh, border. Uh, there's also been dis- discussion of securing a land bridge between Crimea and those regions, which would mean there would then be a land bridge between uh, Crimea and Russia proper. Uh, wh- what do you think is the most we should worry about? What's the most? I mean, nobody seems to think Russia is going to try to occupy Kiev. I've heard some people say it might to make a point actually bomb some military installations on the Kiev side of uh, of of Ukraine. But what do you think in the near term as part of the initial uh, incursion uh, before after which there would be some kind of pause and perhaps discussion? What, what do you think is the most that that incursion could could constitute? Well, the very most in territorial terms is that the Russians cross the Dnieper River and march now, all the way. Now, is that right where Kiev kind of is, or is that there's a big waterway right where Kiev is? Is that shy of that, or what? Uh, well, but it, it, the, the Dnieper sort of has a curious bend in it. Um, the Russians would no. I think the Russians would never march as march to Kiev. No, but if they cross the lower Dnieper down by the Black Sea, they uh-huh. might feel they had to do that because there is a. Uh, a, another pro-Russian separatist area called Transnistria, uh, which is um, part of what is now the independent 
Republic of Moldova, uh, although a bit like Crimea, it was never historically part of Moldova. It was another uh-huh. of these areas that was, you know, shifted around under Stalin uh, um, and Khrushchev. Now, the point is that that has also been holding out as a separatist area with a Russian garrison. Uh, and of course, if if the Ukrainians blockade that, then Russia cannot reinforce it or feed it. And so the Russians might feel that to eliminate that possibility, they have to go all the way. Well, that means occupying Odessa and the whole Black Sea coast of Ukraine. So then they basically take half the country. Um, they won't go to Kiev they, on land. They won't um, invade Western Ukraine. But what you were saying, I mean, look, if, if you have a full-scale war of that kind, then of course they, the, the Russian Air Force will, um, missile forces will set out to, um, to destroy the Ukrainian Air mm-hmm. Force as far as possible on the ground. So you will certainly see n- not bombardment of cities, I believe, because the Russians will be deeply anxious to avoid civilian casualties. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will certainly see um, the, the bombardment of, um, of, of airfields uh, in, uh, across the whole of Ukraine to knock out the Ukrainian air force. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, at this point, we would be talking about, about a blitzkrieg, uh, an attempt at a blitzkrieg with everything that goes with that. At which point there's a, in the in the maximalist vision you've laid out, there, there, you start to see a more political pressure in the West, certainly in the United States, for actual intervention uh, on behalf of the United States. I doubt that would be decisive, but you just you just never know. I mean, one possibility at that point. Sorry, I'm becoming so cynical. You understand on these things. Can't imagine is that, why. No, is that once it became absolutely clear. Uh, that um, Russia was not going to march as far as Kiev or, you know, or into central and western Ukraine. Um, uh, the United States and and possibly, you know, even NATO members would send, you know, t- two or three men um, heroically to defend uh, a line that the Russians had no intention of attacking anyway. Mm. And NATO would parade up and down, trumpeting its courage and resolve and heroism, um, while the Russians carefully stayed you know, 100 miles or so to the east. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that would be NATO's golden bridge. It would enable NATO to look wonderful, at least to itself. Um, how much anyone else in the world would be convinced, I don't know. But I mean, I, I've always felt that for many years now, NATO is basically a, a self-admiration society. <laughs> yeah. And of course, that assumes uh, Russia wouldn't feel compelled for political reasons or whatever to bomb more other stuff while, while not confronting, you know, uh, any NATO presence directly uh, to keep kind of needling, you know, you can imagine this getting out of hand. Okay. So I know you, um, I, I know you need to go in like three minutes. Uh, at this point, do you think some sort of conflict, some sort of incursion is more likely than not given, given what it would take to forestall one and the political reasons not to expect that? On balance, um, yeah, I, I, I would say, you know, we're looking at six to four or so, uh-huh. maybe. In, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I still do believe that um, a, a, a peaceful solution is possible. And actually, in terms of real Western interests and US interests, as opposed to the you know, what you've talked about, the domestic political pressures on, on Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I still think that a, a political compromise um, ought to be entirely possible without sacrificing any actual, not, not just any important Western positions, but actually any Western, significant Western positions at all, given, you know, the realities on the ground. Okay. So I, I want you to, uh, in closing, tell people uh, what uh, what pieces of yours they should uh, read on this. Before before that, I'm going to uh, engage in some, I guess, not entirely uncharacteristic self-promotion. Say, I just posted a piece in my newsletter, uh, the Non-Zero newsletter last night, uh, that provides the historical background. And it's, it's an argument that ever since the late 90s, when we started to uh, expand NATO, if we had paid more attention to how all of this was looking from Russia's perspective. Uh, we just would not have done a series of things, certainly including the relentless expansion of NATO, but not confined to it. A series of things uh, that weren't particularly in our interests anyway, in America's interest, and would predictably antagonize uh, Russia. So there's there's this, this, you know, I hope reasonably concise uh, piece of historical 
uh, background. I, I think it's called uh, How Cognitive Empathy Could Have Averted the Ukraine Crisis. But in any event, it's a piece at the I, top. I strongly recommend that as well. I've just okay. been reading. Well, thank you. Thank you, Anatole. And I strongly recommend whatever you're about to plug and your your entire oeuvre, for example. We, we've known each other for, for decades, actually. And I've, I've always been impressed by the clarity of your your vision. What should people read? Well, if they want to, to, to see how I've always been right, which, you know, I don't know how which widespread... Is. I can attest to your 100% <laughs> accuracy rate. Well, they, they could go back and look, you know, what I wrote in 1995 um, for the Atlantic Monthly, amongst other places, you know, warning of where all this would lead. And in my book on Ukraine and Russia, A Fraternal Rivalry, that came out in 1999, uh, I warned. By the way, I also warned the Russians. I said an attempt... Uh, as, by the way, you know, Putin did in 2013, which was a terrible mistake, to bring Ukraine into a full-scale Russian alliance will cause a revolution in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, but similarly, an attempt to bring Ukraine into a full-scale Western alliance will cause a rebellion in parts of Ukraine supported by Russia, which, of course, is exactly what's happened. But now, you know, anyone who, who's sufficiently interested can, can read what I've been writing for Responsible Statecraft, uh, the, the Quincy Journal. I have a piece coming out this week in time. Uh, but also, if you're really interested, I wrote a, a, a long paper uh, for the Quincy last um, summer, which has just been updated and reissued, uh, setting out in detail the formula for a, a peace settlement um, of the Donbass mm -hmm. uh, crisis. So, um, yeah. Okay, so people Google uh, your name and responsible statecraft uh, and or Quincy, they can throw that word in and, and they'll get there. What's your Twitter handle? Um, uh, it, it's uh, Anatole, God, I hate Twitter, um, Anatole underline Levin, I think, or possibly it's Levin underline Anatole. Um, A-N-A-T-O-L underscore L-I-E-V-E-N. And I'm at Robert Writer, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R, no underscore on on Twitter. Thanks so much for taking the the time, Anatole. I really encourage people to follow you throughout this unfortunate probably unfortunate uh, sequence of events we're about to see. Thank you so much. All it's right. very kind of you. Take care. Bye-bye.